great to worship the Lord. It's great to sing these songs. He will hold us fast. His mercy is more. It's new every morn, we sing. And that's the title, really, of today's sermon, Joy in the Morning. Joy in the Morning. We're going to be in the Psalms still. We read scripture from the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 30 this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 30, and we're going to see what David has to teach us there. The mighty King David of Israel, the one who is really the high point of the Old Testament, the high point of the kings, the one who prefigures the Messiah. In fact, God made a covenant with David, and it tells us that someone will always reign upon the throne of David. And we know that's Jesus Christ. And so we look back now today, and we look at Psalm 30, and we want to see what David has to teach us about ourselves. What he has to say to us, especially when we sin. Where do we go when we sin? What do we do? Where can we go for encouragement? Well, we don't go to the world to encourage us over our sin. They'll tell us to go do more sin. They'll encourage us to do more sin. We don't go to self-help books. We don't go to psychologists. We go to the Word of God first. We go to God's Word for encouragement. And the Psalms are a great book of encouragement. Almost every psalm, even the ones where they're imprecatory, if we understand them properly, can be encouraging. But today I want to read to you Psalm 30. And it's not my goal this morning to exposit the whole psalm. We're not going to go through it like we normally do, verse by verse, uh, telling you what each word means and applying that. I really want to zoom in and look at verse 5 by itself. Because in the middle of this psalm that David is speaking about his own personal life, he gives us a principle that applies to everyone here in verse 5. But I want to read it to you to give you the context. And then we're going to go into verse 5 and use it as a window to look at the theology that it teaches. And we'll look at other passages as well. And we're going to see where it can give us encouragement. So Psalm 30, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. The temple wasn't built yet, so this is probably David preparing. I don't think it's for his house. This is him getting ready for when the temple's built. This is one of the songs that they can sing. And so he wants to write this so that when Solomon builds a temple, they'll have some music to sing when it's dedicated. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones. Or your translation might say saints. And give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me. I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. 
that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's ask the Lord's help in applying this to our hearts today. Lord, we do ask that you would let this verse and this whole psalm really sink into our soul, to our hearts. David is a a faithful follower, a faithful believer, we would say, and he is telling us about his struggle and what happened, and let it be encouraging to us. Let it lift up our face. Let it lift up our heart, as Scripture should do at times. And help us to love you all the more because of your favor, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. Help me as a preacher to proclaim this truth. And I pray that everyone here would take it in and apply it to their own lives. In the name of our Savior, amen. This psalm begins with David's praise. He's praising his God, Yahweh. And Lord in all caps is Yahweh. And he's praising his covenant God of Israel. And you see there just in verse 1, he says, I will extol you. I will proclaim. I will praise you, Yahweh. And he's very enthusiastic. That's what extol means. A, A praise that's enthusiastic. Telling everyone, here is how I praise God. I use my voice. I use my mouth. I sing praises to him. But you might ask, and sometimes we have to do this in the Psalms because they don't always go in chronological order, even inside the psalm. You might ask, why is he praising God? That's a right question. Why is he praising the Lord here? Well, he says God has lifted him up. Don't we all want to be lifted up by the Lord? Don't we all want to praise God for lifting us up? And he says, God has lifted me up. In other words, something has happened to David to bring him low. Have you ever been low in your own life? Have you ever felt like you were in the dust, in sackcloth like they used to in the Old Testament? Have you ever felt the pressure of the world, the flesh, and the devil on you? I just want to give you some of the background here of David's life uh, in just in this few verses that he gives us here. We don't know what brought him low. It doesn't tell us. But we know that he was low. Because he says, God, you have not let my enemies rejoice over me. And then he goes on in verse 2. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried for your help and you healed me. So we don't know if he was hurt from a battle. We don't know if he fell off a wall and broke a, a leg really bad. More than likely, he's just really sick. He's got a deadly illness. And he says, I I almost went to Sheol in verse 3. I almost died. You almost let me go, Lord. And so more than likely, he's suffering from some deadly illness. But he says, God, you've kept me alive. I praise you for that, that I would not go down to the pit. And now in verse 4, which is really a preface to 5, he says, I want other worshipers to praise God with me. Anybody who reads this psalm, he says, sing praise to the Lord. We just sang praises to the Lord in our music. We should be singing praises to the Lord always in our hearts, giving thanks to Him, praising His name, praising Yahweh, he says. And he says, you, His godly ones. He's talking to fellow believers, we would say. Fellow followers of the one true God, looking forward in that day to the Messiah. Our day, we know the Messiah has come. We know the gospel. 
If you're a believer here today, you know that Christ has saved us. And he's talking to the holy ones, the saints. Saints aren't a a statue that you put up in your yard and offer things to. A saint is just a godly person. And this isn't the super godly person that you might be thinking of. This is any person who's saved by the Lord. And he says, all believers, praise God with me and give thanks to his holy name. We ought to give thanks to him, David says. And then he gives us the reason why. And it's really more than one reason. But the whole verse, verse 5, that I want to open up to you. This is the reason he tells everybody to lift up the name of the Lord, to sing praises to the Lord. And he goes into it, for his anger is but for a moment. And we'll go through it line by line. What I think is the the main emphasis here is encouragement in verse 5. We're going to find out that David has sinned. The Lord is angry with him. And David gives us four encouragements for believers when they sin. There's four encouragements. There's four things we learn from this that ought to encourage us when we sin. If you seek Scripture after you've sinned, it will help you. It will guide you. It will keep you from sin in the first place if you study it and follow it. But you will eventually sin. And you need to look here. And here, just in this one verse, a very a popular verse, you might have heard it before, is an encouragement, four of them, for believers when they sin. First of all, the discipline of God is short-lived. The discipline of God is short-lived. He says, His anger is but for a moment. You should praise God when you sin because His anger, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been saved by the blood of Christ, or in David's day you are looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice of the Messiah, you should praise Him Because his anger, his discipline is but for a moment. The word anger here is an expression of strong feelings of displeasure. The word means in Hebrew, God's wrath. When it's used for God, it's his wrath poured out on sinners throughout the Old Testament. And also his anger, or we might even still use the word wrath, poured out on his own people when they sin. God is perfect. He's holy. He's perfectly righteous, and he calls all his people to be holy. He even says, be holy as I am holy. And we know in the New Testament, Jesus says, be perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect. So God is perfect, and he is angered any time a person sins. Which means God has given us a standard. He's given us a law to follow. And even if you've never read his law, You still have a law in your heart that tells you right from wrong. You don't need the Ten Commandments to tell you that murder is wrong. You know it. Every culture around the world has always known it since Adam and Eve. But when we break God's law, when we transgress the law, when we sin against Him, He is angry. He has no other choice. That is exactly who He is. He is perfectly holy. A perfectly holy God, out of His own nature, would be angry at sin would be angry at people who sin. You've probably heard the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. But God says he hates both if they don't repent, if they don't trust in him. But David's speaking here from a believing standpoint. David is speaking as a follower of God, and he says his anger is but for a moment. 
Yes, God, he says, I've rebelled against you. Well, that's what you do when you sin. You're rebelling against the eternal king of the universe. And God is going to come and he's going to punish acts of treason. Why is God angry at David? Let's just pause and ask, why is God angry at David? Well, David doesn't go in chronological order, like I said. So look at verse 6. Now, as for me, I said in my prosperity. So he's already given us the principle in verse 5. Now he's going to go back and tell us how this came about. I said in my prosperity. He was doing great. He was doing well. The Lord had sustained him and built up his kingdom. He was the ruler over God's nation. The first truly righteous king. And he said, I will never be moved. That was a sin right there. I will never be shaken. God has built me up and nothing can knock me down. He was arrogant. He was prideful. All he had to do was just think this in his heart, and that is a sin. Your thoughts are sins, too, if they're not in line with God's standard. I know we live in a world that says just actions are wrong, but thoughts, you can do what you want. The Bible says your thoughts can be sinful as well if they don't line up with God's word. So he was prideful. Look at verse 7. He says, O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. So God had done all this in David's life. And then David got prideful and arrogant. And it says, you hid your face. I was dismayed. What happened, Lord? What did I do? I was, I was built up by you. Oh, yes, my pride, my arrogance. New Testament says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, after Paul goes through Israel and how they stumbled and how they fell. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Each of us, each of us have to remember this. It's throughout Scripture. Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. He wants to shake up your life, each of you. He wants to shake up your life if you're a believer and see what's going to happen. And that's what happened with David. David was prideful. Now for the unbeliever, God's punishment of sin is condemnation. Had David been an unbeliever, he wouldn't have praised God. He just would have been sent to eternal condemnation, eternal judgment. Like God said to Adam, sin brings death. So without a sacrifice, the punishment for sin is eternal death. Someone who doesn't have Christ as their Savior has no hope. They can't even say what David is saying here. They can only say the prideful part. And people say that today. They say, I'll never be moved. I've got all the money I need. I've got everything that America and the world says I should have. I'm perfectly happy. And then something happens to them. And as we had been seeing in Ecclesiastes, bad things often happen to such prideful people. But for the believer, and this is where our joy comes in, for the believer, we don't have eternal condemnation. We don't have eternal punishment. It's only a punishment for a little while. We like to say discipline because we don't like to say that God punishes the believer. But just as you probably uh, punished your children, and that was a discipline, this is a discipline for the believer. But it's only temporary, David says. It's only temporary. It's only for a moment. The Hebrew word for a moment refers to a very brief time. We might say in the twinkling of an eye, 
in our modern language. It's very quick. And the big span of things, God's anger over the believer's sin is very short. It's still right for God to be angry over sin. It's still right, even in the believer's case. He can't overlook it, but there's no eternal punishment. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Yet his anger is soon turned away. As soon as we repent, as soon as we confess our sins to him, his anger is gone. It's but for a moment, David says. It doesn't last for the believer. It's taken away. It's short-lived. It's gone in a moment. We see this throughout the Old Testament. This exact language. Psalm 85, verses 2 and 3. You forgive the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Even God's on nation, God's on people. He had a burning anger towards them. And yet he, he turned away from it. Because they turned away from their sin. Psalm 103, it's a great psalm to encourage you. We'll just look here at verse 9. He says that he will not always strive with us. So the psalmist says, he's not, God is not always going to strive against us. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. How could we stand if God dealt with us according to our sins? We couldn't. And so the psalmist says he's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. He doesn't continue to punish his people, his children. In fact, his loving kindness is there for us. And it exceeds any height, any depth, any width we could imagine. In Micah 7.18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. God has made a covenant with his people. That he would love them. If, if you trust in the Lord and you put all your trust in him and you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus the Messiah, then he will not turn his love away from you. He will not withdraw his love. He withdraws his anger. How thankful should we be for that? You can see why David says, give thanks to the Lord. And just in verse 1, I extol you. And in verse 2, he he cries to God for help. He's healed and he gives thanks to the Lord. If you're repentant today, if you're a Christian, you ought to give thanks every day that the Lord's wrath does not hang over you. It hangs over the unbeliever. It abides on them. It remains with them. But for the believer, it doesn't. Any anger God has is just merely discipline. It's just merely to turn you the right direction. It's a correction. It's a discipline, and even that is for a short while. That should be encouraging. It should be encouraging when you've sinned, which is every day, and you remember that promise. Secondly, though, David tells us the favor of God is eternal. The favor of God is eternal. He simply says his favor is for a lifetime. Now, he's contrasting that with the short-lived anger. God's favor lasts a, literally a lifespan. So favor here means God's goodwill, his delight, his pleasure towards his children. 
It's not the word for grace or mercy, although it certainly incorporates grace and mercy, loving kindness, all those terms, all those attributes that we know that God expresses to us. God's goodwill. God's favor. Even though God disciplines his people for a time, he accepts them favorably forever. Even when you're under discipline, you're not outside the family of God if you're a believer. In fact, often you're drawing closer to God through that. Often you're growing in your holiness as you realize what has happened. When we are repentant of our sin and we have a contrite heart, God responds to that in favor. When we punish one of our children, we don't cast them out. No, we discipline them because we love them and then we welcome them back. They never left the family, but we verbally tell them they're forgiven. God does the same. And look what David says in verse 8. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. He called out to God. He prayed to God for help. He was on his deathbed because of his sin. God brought discipline. The discipline was physical. He hurt. He was in pain. And he knew it was related to his sin. That's why he says his anger is but for a moment. And then verse 8, he starts to praise God. He says, to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? God, I can't praise you there. Please don't kill me, in other words. I can't continue to praise you, and I want to continue. Don't send me to my death. He realizes he's in sin. He calls to the Lord. He prays for God's favor. This should remind us of some great verses in the Bible where God forgives, where God has such loving kindness that we're supported, that we're encouraged in our repentance. Lamentations 3, this time verse 31, For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Do you realize that God destroyed the city of Jerusalem? And when Jeremiah writes Lamentations, he's crying out to God. And right in the middle of that book, he says, you're a good God. You're a loving God. You're a gracious God. And you didn't reject us forever. Yes, you brought grief upon us. God disciplined his nation, even the remnant had some suffering. And he says, God, you were compassionate. Do you remember what God said to Moses when Moses wanted God to pass before him? Let me see your glory, which is a dangerous request to make. And God said, you can't handle my glory, but I'll pass by you if you hide in the rock and you can see just part of my backside. And then as the Lord was passing by in front of him, he proclaimed, The Lord, this is God proclaiming this to Moses. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. And that theme is repeated throughout the Old Testament. And then picked up in the New with New Testament words and repeated over and over all the way to the end of the Bible. God forgives. His loving kindness is for thousands and thousands and thousands. He forgives sin. You remember even Jonah has a problem with that. Remember, Jonah says almost the exact same thing here. I knew, God, that your loving kindness was so great. 
and you were going to save all these sinners, and I didn't want to go to Nineveh. And he gets mad at God for being God, for being gracious. David is saying the favor of God, which includes his grace, it includes his love, can be rightly known when it's contrasted with his anger and judgment. Don't you feel the grace of God, the love of God even more after you've sinned? And you understand you deserve punishment? You deserve even discipline for a longer time than he gave it to you? And yet you understand his grace all the more because you can feel it. It's what the Puritans used to call experiential. You've lived it out. It's not just doctrine that you've been told in church and learned in a Bible study. You've actually lived it and felt it. The old Puritan Matthew Henry said, Our happiness is bound up in God's favor. If we have that, we have enough. Whatever else we want. Let's turn to some good examples in the book of Isaiah. So go forward in your Bible from the Psalms until you hit a big book, the book of Isaiah, and go near the end of Isaiah, starting in chapter 54. And let's look at some longer passages here where we see how God deals with his people. Now, at this point in Isaiah, the people have been taken into captivity. Not in Isaiah's day, but he is speaking as a mouthpiece for God and writing this down, this prophecy, so that later when they read Isaiah, they will be encouraged. So look at Isaiah 54, starting in verse 7. This is how God deals with sinners. 54, 7, for a brief moment, this is God speaking, for a brief moment, I forsook you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. Now he's using what we call anthropomorphic language. God doesn't lose control of his emotions, but they deserved his wrath. And so he's using this, this wording here, outburst of anger. I hid my face from you. He withdrew from them. For a moment, though, just a brief moment, same exact word we see in Psalm 30, verse 5. For just a brief, short-lived time, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. See, anger's for a moment. But how long does God's loving kindness, God's grace, God's chesed in Hebrew, the word is chesed, how long does that last? It's everlasting. It never ends, he says. If you're truly in God's family, if you're a child of God, His kindness, His love, His grace will last forever, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now go forward to Isaiah 57 and verse 15. 57, 15. We're going to go all the way through 19. This is a longer section. Remember, the people are in exile at this point in the storyline of Isaiah. They're in exile and they're crying out and saying, why, why, why? And you can imagine even some folks saying, that was my parents who sinned, not us. And so here's some encouragement from Isaiah, starting in verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high place, in a holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Those who humble themselves, those who repent. For what? For the purpose, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. The person who lowers themselves, the Bible says, will be lifted up. You see that in Proverbs, you see that in the New Testament. You see that even in Mary's song in Luke 2. 
the one who lowers himself and bows down to God and confesses their sin and truly repents. They're revived by God. For I will not contend forever. He's not going to strive and fight against us forever. Nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me. We couldn't even take it as God's people if he stayed angry very long. And the breath of those whom I have made, we would lose our breath. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the heart of his, uh, the way of his heart. We do that sometimes. We sin. And instead of coming to God as quick as we should, we turn away and sin some more. Verse 18, I have seen his ways. God says, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Even the people who are mourning with this person who sinned, God will comfort them, creating the praise of the lips. He's going to help this person praise God now. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. His favor is for a lifetime. That's the kind of favor we have with our God. It saddens me when people don't believe in this true God of Scripture. They either believe in another God or the God of their own making. This God is loving. He's kind. His favor is with us forever. Now the passage in our text in Psalms says for a lifetime. But we saw others that say it's everlasting. And really the literal is just a lifespan. As long as we exist. In other words, it just means life, existence. As long as we exist, God's favor is with us as believers. Well, we continue to exist when we die, don't we? And our soul goes to be with God, our spirit, our soul is with him. And then we're resurrected as believers and we live on forever. So how long is God's favor with us? The logical implication is forever. It's for eternity. As long as the believer lives, which is forever after the resurrection. And that's exactly the message of Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. Sin pays wages. When you sin, you get paid like a job. And if you don't have God as your redeemer, you don't have Christ as your savior, the wage is eternal death. But, he says in Romans 6, 23, the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no wage. There's no analogy there of working. It's a free gift. It's given to you. And it's eternal life in Christ Jesus. Sin pays wages. That's death. But Christ gives us a free gift. Do you remember when the prophet Nathan came to David? This isn't the, the sin that he's talking about here in Psalm 30. But in 2 Samuel 12. David had committed adultery. He had killed this man. He had done these great sinful things. And David comes, or Nathan the prophet comes to David the king, and he tells him this parable about the, the lost little lamb, and David gets angry. And then Nathan says, you are the man. You're the one I'm talking about. And immediately David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan immediately, there's no gap, there's no gap in time, there's nothing else that's said before he says this, the Lord has taken away your sin you shall not die. David deserved death. And the Lord took away his sin. And he did not have to die. Now there were consequences in his life. That's another sermon. He didn't have to die for his sin. He didn't have to pay for that sin. 
Richard Sibbs said, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. We can't outsin the mercy of Christ. The favor of God is eternal. The third encouragement David gives us here, the third one is the sorrow of sin is temporary. So we've looked at it from God's perspective in the first two points, but now we're getting into our perspective as the person who has sin. The sorrow of sin is temporary. Weeping may last for the night. Now the night here is not a literal night. It's not speaking of just when the sun goes down. It's, it's used metaphorically. It's an emotional and spiritual darkness and suffering. It's an affliction. One old commentator said it's an allusion to the time when afflictions are usually most heavy and pressing upon persons. When they most feel them. If you've sinned and you've lived for any amount of time you've sinned, you understand this. There's a spiritual darkness. There's an emotional darkness over your sin. You feel it. It feels crushing. It's weighty. It's heavy. And there's weeping. There's weeping over it. Well, why is there weeping when we sin? Well, there's weeping that comes from the pain uh, that sin causes, the pain in our lives, uh, the pain really to God because He does get angry with us. And as a follower of God, as a believer, that should pain you, that should hurt your heart when you sin against God. So there's guilt, there's shame. And that's enough to make one weep. You don't even need to add other things, but there are other things that we weep about in times like this. Other things like consequences to our sin. David's sin had many consequences in his life. All of our sins have consequences. If it's a sin that we just think a sinful thought, that affects us, that affects our mind, affects our, sometimes our body. If it's a sin we commit outwardly towards others, that has consequences. And so we weep over that. And that's right. That's good. That's a good thing. And often God uses that as our discipline. He uses the consequences of our sin to teach us that the sin was wrong. We often knew that going into it, but he reminds us very well through his discipline. Why is David weeping? Well, we looked at that in verse 6, how he was prideful, he was arrogant, he sinned against the Lord. God turned away his face. And he says, look, I know that you're going to be weeping after you sin. But this principle in verse 5 should lead you to praise God, be encouraged, because God is doing something. God is using this. And it's only going to last for a little moment, only for a night. Let's look at some verses on God's discipline. We really haven't looked at the big ones on that. Let's go to Hebrews, the New Testament opens this up for us. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. How can God use sorrow in our lives? Discipline and sorrow. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. The writer of Hebrews goes into an exposition, an explanation of God's discipline. And he wants us to understand that if you are a son of our daughter of God, you will be disciplined. It's a good thing. And he tells us how it's a good thing. So Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5, you have, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. When God comes to discipline you for your sin, don't regard that lightly. 
Don't push it off. Don't faint like you can't take it. God will strengthen you. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you're never disciplined for your sin, you're not a son of God. That's what that verse is saying. If he loves you, but he loves all those who trust in Christ, all those who look to Christ as their sacrifice, turn from their sin, he disciplines them. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. And then he uses our analogy that we understand here on earth as families. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God never disciplines you, then you're not even one of his children. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? A lot of people subject themselves to their earthly father, but they have a hard time doing that to our heavenly father. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But his, but he disciplines us, God here, for what? Our good. It's for our good so that we may what? Share in his holiness. There's a purpose behind it. It's not eternal punishment. It's not punishment without a purpose even. It's discipline for a purpose so that we would share in his holiness. And then in verse 11, he just explains it all right there. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's not. It should hurt. It's discipline. When I spank my children, I don't just tap them. If they're old enough, you got to give them a real spanking. That's what he's saying here. God does that for us, and it's for our good. And it seems like it's not joyful, but sorrowful, and it is. Discipline should make you sorrow over your sin. Yet to those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Not that we should ever want more and more discipline, but when it does come, it's a good thing. It trains us in righteousness. And it will come. It is already coming. If you have sin, it will come upon your life. First Peter 1, 6. Peter's is a little more dense here, but we, we pick it up in chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. The word distress means extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. So you have great sorrow. You have great anxiety. Distressed by various trials. So that, that's the purpose here. What's the purpose of all this sorrow and pain and anxiety? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, somebody who says they're a believer and they've never been tested, they've never been disciplined, they've never been through a trial like this, there's no proof, there's no evidence. They have to go through that to exhibit the fruit of righteousness. And every true believer will. But back in Psalm 30, David says that weeping only lasts for the night. It's good for us, but it only lasts for a little while. Thank the Lord. Thank God that it's short. The verb in that passage in Psalm 30, verse 5, means to spend the night, to stay overnight. So it's personifying weeping here. And it's saying weeping only stays one night in the end. Weeping only rents a room in your life for a short while. And then it has to leave. Because the verb here means traveling along. 
Some translations might say tarrying for the night. But after weeping leaves, a new guest comes in. And it's joy. When the sun rises, the old guest has to vacate the house and the new guest comes in. And that is joy. That's our last point, point four. The fourth encouragement here that David gives. The joy from God causes celebration. We feel it at this point. The favor of God is a truth about God. We feel it though in point four. Our feelings line up with what God says, what we know to be true. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. This is not just joy by itself, but a shout of joy. It's not just a feeling in the heart, but we actually feel it so much that we shout it out, that we sing praises, that we proclaim the truth about God's goodness. This verb, shout of joy, it's all one word in Hebrew. It's used in other places to describe things like the angels when they saw God create the stars in Job 38. They sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. That kind of joy that the angels can shout when they saw the stars created. This verb comes up a lot in Psalms where shouting for joy and praise to God is mentioned. Psalm 47.1, clap your hands, all people shout to God with a voice of joy. Yes, weeping is hard. It, it, it weighs heavy on us. But when it's gone, we shout for joy. We proclaim joy. And Psalm 126, let's go there because it, it lines up a lot with the verse we're looking at here. Psalm 126 and verse 5. So it's talking about the shouting of joy, but it also Contrast it with weeping here. Those who sow tears shall reap with joyful shouting. The tears are like seeds that go into the ground when you weep. And they're going to sprout up joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him, his fruit, his produce. The tears went down and they sprouted up righteousness in your life. Godliness, holiness. This is again what we see in the psalm here with David. Back in Psalm 30. Starting in verse 10. Hear, O Lord. Listen to how he is praising God. Hear, O Lord. O Yahweh, be gracious to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. You have turned from me my mourning, my sadness. Mourning is what you do over a person who's died. My sadness into dancing. He thought he was going to die. He was mourning his life and his sin. But God turned it into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. He says, you've loosened it. You've taken it off and you've girded me. You put on gladness. That my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. When God does this, when he takes the believer's sorrow and he turns it into joy, we ought to celebrate. The shout of joy here can be also translated as shout of jubilation. We've got to celebrate. Let's praise Him. Let's worship Him. When we've gone off in the darkness, God doesn't just let us go. He doesn't just let us keep going into that dark cave, that dark crevice, wander away from Him into a dark valley. He's a good shepherd and He comes 
And he takes us and he puts us on his shoulder and he brings us back to the flock and he takes care of us. He bandages our wounds. He heals us. Darkness does not last forever because it says joy comes in the morning. Now, the use of morning here obviously contrasts with the night. Night represents a time of darkness for the soul. And it's used in other places, the same kind of thing. Psalms 46.5, Jerusalem. He's talking about Jerusalem. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Psalm 90.14, Moses writes, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. He keeps using this idea of the sun coming up and bringing brightness and light. There's no more darkness. Psalm 143, verse 8. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. It's right to have godly sorrow over sin, and it's right to rejoice when God has restored you, when God has forgiven you, when God has reconciled you. Jesus told us there will be sorrow in this life. There will. He told his disciples. He said, you're going to weep. You're going to lament in John 16. You're, the world's going to rejoice, but you're going to be sad when I go. But you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. Why? Because of what he's done for us. Our sorrow will be joyful. 2 Corinthians 4.17. You ought to memorize this one if you're really struggling, if you're discontent. This is a good one to memorize. For momentary light affliction. It doesn't feel like that when it happens, does it? But he says it's momentary, it's light, it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It feels heavy, it feels long, it feels sad, it feels dark. But it's producing something an eternal weight of glory, something we can't even imagine beyond all comprehension. This is the future glory believers will experience with the Lord in eternity. It outweighs any suffering that we have to go through in this life. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said God will turn their winter's night into a summer's day. Their sighing into singing, their grief into gladness, their mourning into music, their bitter into sweet, their wilderness into a paradise. And that's exactly what Lamentation says. The one you probably have heard about. If you haven't heard about the one I mentioned already. Lamentations 3.22. You've heard that one? Is it encouraging? This I recall to my mind. So everybody's been killed that he knows just about. A few, all the rest have been taken into slavery. Jeremiah and a few remain. And he's so broken over the city being destroyed. And he says, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You got to hear me today, brothers and sisters in Christ. When this fits you, which it should regularly when you sin, you got to go here and find encouragement. This psalm, all the psalms, all the Bible. If you are weeping for the night, you can be assured that by the grace of God, you will have joy that comes in the morning. You will. God will fulfill his promises. He will do it. God's not left us when we sin. He's right there. He's, he doesn't want us to sin. He's not encouraging us to sin. He's not participating in the sin. We can't stain him with our sin. 
but he is with us and he will turn us back to him. We shouldn't hole up somewhere in a closet and never come out when we sin. We can pray as long as we need, but we shouldn't just say our life is over. We're done. Wallow in our sin. We do that sometimes too long. We ought to come out and praise God for his forgiveness and rejoice with believers in Christ. I'll close with Spurgeon. Always love Spurgeon. He says about this passage, and I think it's morning and evening. It's a great little book to read every day. About this verse, he says, Let us go on boldly, if the night be never so dark, the morning cometh, which is more than they can say who are shut up in the darkness of hell. Do you know what it is thus to live on the future, to live on expectation, to antedate heaven? He's talking about looking forward, not looking right now at what's happening, but forward. Happy believer. To have so sure, so comforting a hope. It may be all dark now, but it will soon be light. It may be all trial now, but it will soon be all happiness. Amen to that. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what sins that you have committed, but we've all sinned. And we all need God's word to encourage us. And we need to remember truths just like this that David gives us. So let's pray for that now that that would happen in our lives. Lord, it's uh, heavy sometimes when we sin. The holier we get, the more sin sets upon us and is a weight to our heart, to our spirit. And we need you, God, to come along and to lift us up, drive us to repentance. Let us turn back to you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And lift us up. Show us that joy in the morning. Show us what it means to have you as our Savior. We pray that you would remind us of this each and every day that we walk with Christ, even now, even as we proclaim his death till he comes with the Lord's Supper. Remind us, O oh Lord, how gracious you are. In the name of Christ, amen.